Well, good evening. Good evening to you all and welcome to week two of this thought-provoking series that we've entitled Clash of Convictions, Challenging Life Issues. Last week we looked at the underpinning subject or topic of identity and this week our topic is sexuality. Is God fixed or fluid on sex and gender? Great to see so many of you here tonight. It's a great blessing from across the city. We mentioned last week about 30 churches were represented. I imagine it's fairly similar tonight. So my name's Simon Ford and a very warm welcome to each one of you. It's just fantastic to see you all here. Now these uh, four Wednesday evenings in May, we've chosen four substantial challenging issues, life cha- ones that we believe are burning issues uh, and really cry out for us to think thoughtfully about them and carefully to examine them, uh, given the weight that they have on all our lives. Um, And it's good to think. It's good to think well and not to be kind of drawn along with the culture, but to listen to a voice that comes in from outside the culture to speak to us. And, of course, we mentioned last week about how our views and our convictions on these substantial issues, these big issues, are formed and shaped out of how we actually view the world, our worldview, our frame of reference, if you like, the dominant lens through which we see ourselves, one another, the world, and, of course, God. And uh, as you know, these lenses that we have are silently formed, very much so by our backgrounds and our experience uh, and, of course, from the culture we live in. And so what we're seeking to do... Uh, in all of these uh, uh, weeks is really to examine both the secular and the world views on each of these topics so that we understand the foundation or the background, the rationale, the reasoning behind these world views so that we really are left with this opportunity to see, well, what is a more excellent way of living? What's a more beautiful way of living? And that's what we intend to do again today with this whole subject of sexuality. So there'll be the three, again, major segments tonight. Now, Dan will be joined tonight on the panel uh, by James Parker. And it's just great to have James Parker with us tonight. Here's James. Just give him a round of applause. Fantastic to have James uh, with us. He's been with us on a number of other occasions. I think many of you might have met James. But I thought it would be good just to introduce James at the outset so that during the presentation you had an opportunity also to direct questions to James, given James's particular background and speciality. James has taught extensively on same-sex attraction and sexual addiction. He runs programs and seminars across Europe to help foster and foster groups and organisations to help support men and women in the journey of recovery. James spent 10 years in London engaging with unique spiritual, the unique spiritual journey of hundreds of men and women with differing degrees of same-sex attraction. And as an abuse victim and having previously lived and practiced as a gay rights activist, James has a passion for the godly restoration of men and women. So it's just fantastic to have James with us and to share his experience uh, during the uh, panel time tonight. Let me just now begin our time in prayer together. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we are just so thankful for your presence here among us. And Lord Jesus, your presence here by your spirit. We worship you, we love you, and we look to you together tonight. We thank you for the opportunity. 
Lord, and our hearts are to learn from you. Lord, to be built up. Lord, to go on, to be mature. Lord, in the things, Lord, that we encounter in this world. So, Lord, we pray for insight, we pray for wisdom, and we pray for understanding tonight. We pray for Dan and for James as they share with us. Lord, anoint them, Lord, and may, Lord, they, by your Spirit, speak, Lord, into each of our hearts that we might learn and that we might grow and that we might mature in you. We ask these things, Lord, in your name. Amen. And amen. Well, it's a great privilege to have Dan... Uh, Patterson uh, with us tonight, our keynote speaker, just to help us think really well about our subject. It's a powerful subject. But Dan's a national, international speaker with Ravi Zacharias International Ministries. He lives here in Australia in Brisbane. And uh, after some family tragedies that raised a series of barriers to belief in God, Dan came to Christ at the age of 17. And that was through an investigation of the New Testament. And the towering figure of Jesus of Nazareth and his response to suffering moved Dan to faith. And so given Dan's own personal experience, he's kind of developed a driving passion to study theology and apologetics in order to help make sense of the Christian faith for sceptics and spiritual seekers. He completed a bachelor's and master's degree in ministry and in theology in Australia as well as the one-year course at Oxford Centre for Christian Apologetics. Jan, Dan joined the RZIM speaking team in 2015 upon serving as an ordained pastor for seven years and working with the Mellon College, the Baptist Theological College there in Queensland, as a part-time lecturer. And he led the, tra- the Traverse Centre, which kind of bridges the church into the culture. And Dan led that. He speaks regularly. Uh, now right across the world and he's, he's really, his heart is to connect the gospel with the biggest questions of life and the popular objections to the Christian faith. Dan's married, he has two children, he's married to Erin, he has two beautiful children and he's expecting the third. Isn't that wonderful? Probably in about three months time. So Dan, it's just fantastic to have you with us and let's just give Dan the warmest of welcome. He's not feeling as well as he could. But it's just great to have you with us tonight, Dan. Bless you, mate. Thank you. Well, it's just a real privilege to be back here in Perth. I have some great friends over in this side of the country, and so always love coming and visiting, being able to speak to a topic like this. I apologize in advance. I'm struck down with a terrible malady, which is known only to half of our species. It's called the man flu. I have been in the delivery room twice for both of my boys being born, and yet still I'm convinced that my wife has no idea what suffering is compared to experiencing (laughs) the man flu. And so if anything I say makes some kind of sense tonight, then I will have done the job as an apologist in being able to prove the existence of God, because it will be something of a miracle, feeling the kind of haze that I do in my mind. Um, But it's a a real honor for me to be able to come and address something which is one of the most important conversational topics of our time, because this isn't an issue to be discussed. We're talking about people. And in fact, when we talk about sexuality, we're talking about all of us, something that is a deep and rich and challenging and confusing part of every human being's experience of life here. And it is one, given the cultural narratives out there, that many people find almost impossible to navigate to find any kind of meaning, fulfillment, satisfaction, joy, and understanding as to what part sexuality should play ultimately in their life. 
And I want to recognize right at the outset just a couple of things. Um, there will be some people in the room for whom this is a particularly sensitive topic, whether for various reasons about your past or your experience right now, this is going to be something that touches really close to home. And so I want to be as sensitive as I can tonight in speaking to this broader conversation, both from secular and Christian perspectives, and just be aware that those hurts, those concerns, those fears that you might have could be there. I'm not blind to them. And so please, I hope you will experience this tonight as a safe space where you can come with everything that you are and feel like you're loved, valued, welcome and ultimately being heard as well in the Q&A and conversations afterwards. But I also want to acknowledge for some people in this room as well who maybe come from a secular perspective, you may be thinking, what on earth does this young, white, heterosexual, married with kids man think he's going to be able to speak into my experience of sexuality? There is, for me, very little cultural credibility that comes, given my own background and experience. And I want to recognize that up front as well. You may think I've got nothing meaningful to share. And to be honest, from my own experience, I don't think I have a whole lot to bring to the table. But I do have a lot of friends that I listen to very carefully. And I do have a story that I think brings incredibly good news, a better story than the secular story, to be able to shape our understanding of sexuality and hope both for this life and in the life to come. And so I want to be able to speak not from my own experience and therefore credibility, but to be able to speak more from what I think the Christian story is able to offer and those who have come from various backgrounds to encounter it, what they're able to bring to that as well. So I hope I can speak helpfully. You can be the judge of this. Uh, it was Alastair McIntyre, the Catholic theologian, who I think said something very profound in his book, After Virtue. He said, you cannot answer the question, how then shall we live, until you answer the prior question, of which story do I find myself a part? You cannot answer the question, how then shall we live, until you first answer the prior question, of which story do I find myself a part? And right now in Western culture, we're bombarded really with a choice between two major stories, a story that has shaped much of the heritage and the formation of Western civilization, the Judeo-Christian story that would come through us with the Bible, and then the secular story, which has developed really since the Enlightenment kind of period onwards, a new way of making sense of life's deepest questions, only in this secular story, rather than referencing them to God, instead, there is no God in the secular worldview, And so we become the authors of our own script. We get to make up our own meaning, our own understanding of how things play out. And and what I want to do in the area of sexuality tonight is really explore what is it that these two stories say about who we are as sexual beings, how we should understand ourselves, and where ultimate meaning and satisfaction lies in the area around sexuality. So we're going to begin, first of all, with the secular story. As I shared before, secularity, the best way to understand it, not the political philosophy of a separation between church and state, where the state does not privilege one expression of religious belief over all of the others. That's political secularity. But cultural secularity is really the idea of not allowing religious belief to shape the public space or really have a significant voice at all. It's the idea of pushing religious belief into the private world. Whatever you believe religiously, that's for what you do behind closed doors. But in the public space, 
Here we only allow voice to non-religious ideas. We privilege non-religious thinking in this space. And as a result, secularity became a major vacuum in our culture into which all kinds of humanistic and atheistic philosophies have ultimately come. It was the great call of the Enlightenment era thinkers, many who called themselves brights. This idea of uncoupling our cultural experience, our understanding of life from this Christian story of our heritage and of our past. It was Friedrich Nietzsche all the way back at the turn of the 20th century who began to declare this death of God in philosophy, that we've moved past belief in God. That used to be what we did. Now we don't need God anymore. We can make sense of life without reference to God. But at the same time, his belief system moved into a dark nihilism. It's a philosophy of meaninglessness, of no ultimate purpose to life. And so as human beings, we have to invent it. Now, Nietzsche was actually quite bleak about the outlook of a culture without God. He warned that now there was no moral compass. There was no ultimate sense of truth, that we've lost objectivity and moving into relativity. And in fact, he warned that because of the death of God in the 19th century, that the 20th century would become the bloodiest century in all of human history and that a universal madness would break out. Something of a prophet. Aldous Huxley, a little bit after him, another key atheistic thinker, a literary figure, you've probably read a ton of his books, but in one of his more politically motivated books, a book called Ends and Means, he describes how for him, in terms of his sexual desires, how this philosophy of meaninglessness, how atheism, secularism, ultimately became a tool of liberation. I don't want anyone to tell me what to do in closed doors. No one has the right to tell me who I should sleep with or when I should sleep with them. And so he writes in there that for him, atheism allowed him this new freedom. And it wasn't because he was convinced that atheism was true, but rather because he was motivated to want to have the freedom to express himself in any way that he desired, that atheism became the tool to enable that to happen, the tool of liberation. And because of that desire, he went searching for skeptical reasons to justify his atheism. But I think this is one of the big undergirding philosophies. No one has the right to tell me what to do. And as secular culture has rolled on, particularly across the 20th century, this feeds into what became the great sexual revolution of the 60s and 70s. We don't have to live with these traditional sexual mores anymore. People telling us who we are and how to think and how to act and how to be. There is no ultimate big story of which we find ourselves apart. The universe is amoral. It is purposeless. We have no ultimate reason for being here. So why not YOLO? We only live once. So let's eat, drink, and be merry. Let's squeeze all of the sexual satisfaction that we can out of life. Let's explore and experiment. These bodies are no longer temples. Now they're playgrounds. So why not do as much as we can? Because you can understand in the absence of the pursuit of God, with no more ultimate relationship with him as the purpose of our existence, well, what's the next best thing? Sex. The ultimate act of worship. The closest thing to spiritual ecstasy that you can experience. The orgasm became the new form of worship. But the sexual, secular view sorry, of sexuality, it's also constantly been evolving the messages are incredibly mixed the ones you get from hollywood and from your social studies departments and from key online search engines what should we believe about our sexual selves and the formation of our nature what does it mean to be human and the overarching ideology of the sexular culture now is this idea of expressive 
individualism. You do you. Be who you are. Don't deny that ultimate inner essence. Make up your own meaning. Your truest self is who you ultimately feel you are. And this is filtered down into all the aspects of the broad vision of what sexuality is. If you were to Google nowadays, what is sexuality? Something akin to this will come up in various formats. And it breaks down the human experience of who we are into various aspects. Things like our biological sex. The sex that you were assigned at birth, the thing that you were born with, determined ultimately by your genetic coding, by your primary and secondary sexual characteristics, biological sex, male or female. But then there is also gender identity. This is who you feel you are, irrespective of what your body says that you are. Your body is just a biological machine, and the truest self is who you feel yourself to be on the inside. And so whether that's male, whether that's female, or whether that's some non-binary option, many of the 72 categories in between and counting that Facebook now allows you to have. In fact, now they have even shifted that to be create one of your own meaning. You get to decide who you are. Your identity is ultimately self-determined from what you feel. Then there is this idea of sexual orientation. Who is it that you are romantically interested in, that you're sexually aroused by, that you're drawn towards for meaningful relationship? And then there's gender expression. How is it that you reveal yourself to the outside world, wrapped up in things like how you dress, how you speak, how you act, the kind of activities that you get involved in, but how is it that you relate to the outside world? And these are heavily stereotyped by various cultural views. And this would be the baseline kind of narrative on how secular culture would now talk about sexuality, that there are these various aspects to who we are, but the ultimate way that you can be meaningfully fulfilled is by being true to who you feel that you are, that it's incredibly dangerous to go against those deep feelings because sexuality is the core, perhaps the most powerful force of who we are in sexual culture in determining our identity. You are what you feel. And one of the interesting developments of this perspective is the relatively low view that it has of the body. As we said before, as being something of a temple, now simply to a playground. Or as being something that is part innate to us, now it's merely something that is rather incidental. It was the thing to which you were assigned at birth. It doesn't really describe or define you in any significant way. In fact, many writers talk about you being a ghost in a machine. A Gnostic view, a new kind of Gnosticism, a dichotomy between body and mind or spirit. And the truest self can often actually be trapped in this particular kind of body. And for young people, the messages are incredibly confusing. The worst thing that could possibly happen to you is that you would be a 40-year-old virgin. Why? Because unless you are expressing your sexual feelings, unless you are exploring sexuality, unless you are able to ultimately fulfill these desires, well, you are some kind of bizarre, subhuman, Neanderthalic kind of creature. You haven't yet arrived at the fullest experience of what life can ultimately be about. If you're not having good sex all the time or with the right kind of people, then ultimately your life is not as worth living. And think about how the Hollywood narrative has shaped this. All of the stories from my upbringing, from Aladdin to the Little Mermaid, they lived happily ever after. Something was deeply wrong in my life until... I found my salvation in the arms 
of another person. And unless I'm wrapped up in one particular romantic relationship, I find my soulmate, I'm fulfilled in the arms of another person, then my life is incomplete. Singleness, while it's free for a time, but it's a death sentence in the long term. And when it comes to sexual ethics in secular culture, one of the interesting ideas is where are the boundaries anymore? They have been shifting and moving back and forth over the previous decades. And what we seem to have arrived at now is something akin to this. Do what makes you happy so long as it doesn't hurt anyone else and certainly doesn't impinge upon someone else's consent. Do what makes you happy so long as it doesn't hurt anyone else. I think this would largely be the summary statement of sexual ethics in our secular age. Do what makes you happy so long as it doesn't hurt anyone else. Because what's wrong with anything outside of that? If there is no overarching story, if I get to define good and evil for myself, if I'm just being true to who I am, how can anything I do in a bedroom at any point in time actually be considered to be wrong? And so it's this great act of sexual liberation. There is no wrong in that realm anymore, unless your name is Harvey Weinstein and you've done terrible, terrible things. That's our secular understanding. What about the Christian story? How is it the Christian story is understood by our secular culture? Because to many seculars, as they look in, as they understand there's these do's and there's these don'ts in the Christian story, well, it seems to be really repressive. And in fact, it seems to create all kinds of harm by telling people that they're doing things wrong and perhaps creating these guilt complexes or telling people that there is something in who they are that is not right, that is creating this incredible deep pain. And as a result, the Christian story is something to be opposed. It's deeply harmful, and we hear this all the time. Some of my good friends that are same-sex attracted and yet follow Jesus are constantly assailed on social media and in public protests that what they're doing is contributing to the harm of young people who are wrestling with sexuality in these confusing times and are deeply finding that there aren't meaningful answers. But I don't think it's the Christian story that's doing harm. I think it's the secular story crashing against the Christian story that's doing harm. Because if the secular story tells you that the only way you can be meaningfully fulfilled is by living out all of your sexual desires, by being true to all of your internal feelings, and then you come across a story that says actually true fulfillment is found in degrees of self-restraint, well then I understand why that sounds really difficult or disorienting. But what if you were to step fully into the Christian story, not beginning with secular roots, and then looking at Christian sexual ethics, but understanding the entire reason why sex and marriage were given by a good God in the first place. Because I think the Christian story is remarkably liberating for human beings everywhere in the area of sexuality if you understand this better story and what it is that God has given to us in the gift of our sexual selves. And so what I want to do tonight is just explore from beginning to end, Genesis to Revelation, a walk through the Bible on what it says on sex and gender. And this will be headlines only. But my suspicion is it will challenge seculars and Christians alike in what God says in these areas. And that it ultimately is incredibly good news. And that it's not just good news to some, but that it's good news to all. And it's good news in every area of life precisely because of who God ultimately is and what it is that he's promised for us. 
So let me begin with the first scene in the biblical story, which is this idea that we have been created for good. If you were to go back and read Genesis, this is not some rule book that tells you how you must live. It's a story that begins, has middle, and ultimately a new beginning rather than an ending. In the first book of the Bible, in the book of Genesis, it describes God's creation of human beings. It says that God, an eternally existing communion of Father, Son, and Spirit, one being three persons, just like almost one marriage and two persons, a husband and a wife. But this eternally existing union desires to be able to expand that circle of love and so creates the entire cosmos. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. And God forms and shapes the raw materials of creation, ultimately cultivating a place that would be suitable for human life. And then it says that in Genesis 1, 26 and 27, that God creates humanity to bear his image. And it says he created men, male and female, he created them. That men and women both bear the image of God, incredible dignity, value, and worth. But that we were created as embodied creatures, not as a ghost in a machine, but as a psychosomatic whole. That humanity has always been an embodied creature, male or female. And when it comes to sex, the Bible is not prudish at all. In fact, it uses incredibly positive language when it speaks about God's design of human beings, both as having rational capacities, as having creative desires, as having moral center, but also as being sexual creatures. We were created male and female, biologically complementary, psychologically desiring with these deep sexual hungers that were wrapped up in who we are. It's not like God made Adam and Eve the way that he did and then went off to make a sandwich in heaven and came back and found them doing something that he didn't think that they would do. Whoa, what are you doing? No. Rather, that initial coming together was something that was officiated by God, the first wedding, God bringing Eve down the aisle to Adam. And there is Adam sings over her, speaking about God, knitting them together. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and mother, be united to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. The first human marriage. And in the Bible story, from creation onwards, marriage and sex are imbued with an incredibly important purpose. It was C.S. Lewis in Mere Christianity who spoke about determining ethics. How is it that we understand whether something is right or wrong? And in there, he uses this analogy where he says that there are three questions that we always need to ask ourselves when it comes to understanding ethics. He said, and we'll use the analogy of nautical ships, a captain going out in a boat on the water. He said, the first question a captain needs to ask is, how do I keep this boat from sinking? Individual ethics. What do I need to do to not shipwreck my own life? to ultimately self-destruct. In other words, do what makes you happy. He said the second question that we need to ask has to do with how do we keep from bumping into other ships? We're not alone out there on the water. There's an entire human community out there in ships. So this idea of social ethics, do what makes you happy so long as it doesn't hurt anyone else. This would be the secular kind of reduction. But what C.S. Lewis says, if were we only to stay with those two questions, we ignore the most fundamental question of all. The same question Alistair McIntyre was hinting at at the beginning. Question number three, what am I doing out here in the water in the first place? Is there a purpose for my existence? Is there an ultimate destination to which I'm meant to be Navigating some way that I can tell whether any deviation from that particular design 
is actually taking me away from rather than towards that intended goal. Now, if the secular story is true and there is no God, then absolutely do what makes you happy so long as it doesn't hurt anyone else. The logic is impeccable. And there may be secular reasons to do certain things in relationship based on social science, and fine. But for the most part, I think secular people, starting from their story, are just being logical in their thinking. But if the Christian story is true and there is a heavenly father who designed us as his earthly kids, if he loves us and put a moral grain into the universe, if he gives us a purpose for our existence, then it actually shapes how we think about the morality of anything, especially when it comes to sex and marriage, to sexual ethics as a whole. What is God's ultimate purpose for sex and marriage? And across the pattern of the Bible, it actually reveals a number of things that marriage and sex are designed to do. Uh, This idea of the two becoming one flesh, I'll allow you to imagine what exactly he's talking about there, but please don't imagine too hard, otherwise we'll have trouble with sexual ethics again. But this union in sex, this intimacy, the physical act of what it's representing, one flesh, the Hebrew term ichad, in the Old Testament, this word is actually used of God. If you were a Jewish boy or girl and you went along to Saturday school and you were being taught Torah, the first verse that you are encouraged to memorize is one that Jesus quotes. It's the Shema, Deuteronomy 6, 4, and 5. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one, Echad, and you shall worship the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your strength. Now, isn't it interesting that the Old Testament repeatedly, along with the New, describes this oneness to God. And yet from the very first couple of verses in the Bible, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth and the earth was formless without void. Darkness was over the face of the deep and the spirit of God was hovering over the waters. And then God said, and the word of God goes forth in creation. There is complexity in God from the very beginning. Let us make man in our image, in our likeness male and female, complexity in God from the very beginning. As you move forward throughout the biblical story, this picture of there being a multiplicity, a community in the oneness of God just becomes so clear, particularly in the teaching and life of Jesus. If you've seen me, you've seen the Father, baptized in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Spirit. May the love of God and the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit be with you always. There is a threeness to God. Three who's, but one what? See, the oneness of God, this central Christian teaching, which grounds the very nature of love, by the way. If God were not Trinitarian, there was no way that God could be love from all eternity because love requires a lover and a beloved and the disposition of love between them. This Trinitarian picture of the way that God is, grounding his very essence of being love, is something that is reflected in this particular human relationship. Diversity and unity, male and female. God being ichad, one, the husband and wife becoming ichad, one. And so marriage is there to reveal something about what God is like in the Trinity. But marriage also serves in God's created purpose to reveal something of the nature of the gospel story as it will unfold throughout the pages of the Bible. If uh, anyone here seen the movie Endgame Avengers recently, 
took me three weeks to get there. I, it was my first night, and uh, I was played it really dangerous by having two drinks at the beginning of Endgame, two big Cokes with me. And so just to be able to survive that three hour without going to the bathroom. I made it, by the way. That's my superpower. Um, <laughs> but what's so interesting is we love seeing trailers to movies. <laughs> what's our appetite? for the real thing that's yet to come. But once you go and see the movie, you don't go back and watch the trailer. Once the real thing is there, well, the trailer served its purpose. The Bible actually speaks about the exact same thing being true about marriage and about sex. That it reveals something about the future of our relationship with God, but it's reflected here in human form. So that the marriage between a husband and a wife, Paul tells us in Ephesians 5, this is a great mystery, but I'm actually speaking about Christ and the church. See, the Bible in Genesis 2 begins with a wedding. And in Revelation 19, it ends with a wedding. First, a wedding of a man and a woman, then finally a wedding between Christ and his church. The same language of husband and wife is spoken of God and Israel in the Old Testament. Human marriage serves as the profound metaphor of the kind of intimacy and proximity that God wants to have with his people and one day will when he returns to take up residency again on planet Earth, where we will see him no longer through a glass dimly, but then face to face. Marriage here, it's just a metaphor. It's a small picture and reveals the nature of the gospel. But sex also has some really powerful sociological formation. The way in which God designed human beings to function is that the act of sex does all kinds of things to our brain chemistry to be able to bond us together. You you quite literally can get addicted to another person for roughly about 18 months to two years, our so-called honeymoon period for relationships, Precisely because sex was designed to bond us together in this profound kind of oneness, of this union, to help through that storming period for deep commitment and resolve to the other person, appreciation of who they are, to be able to form over those early years of marriage. And so we're talking about a powerful force. Sexuality is not a small thing. It is an incredibly powerful gift of God. And it's one that he think so highly of that there is nearly an entire erotic poem in the Old Testament called Song of Songs, which is there with very explicit language, if you know Hebrew idiom, to be able to speak of the goodness of God's design in sex and marriage, but also the warning to not arouse or awaken love, this kind of love, until the appointed time. And so this is the created vision that God has for sex and marriage, to reveal something of who he is, to be able to create these pairs of just like the Trinity overflowing in love to all creation, a husband and wife overflowing naturally in procreation. But also the biblical story moves on from this point of creation to be able to describe something going deeply wrong with our sexual selves. You see, in Genesis 3, it doesn't take long for the human project to actually deviate from God's intended purpose. It describes that the same freedom that makes love possible to be able to receive and reciprocate with meaningful love is the freedom that human beings abuse to be able to rather than love God and to trust the moral fabric that our Heavenly Father set up. Instead, we broke faith with God and we turned our back on him. And what theologians describe as the fall, this becoming damaged by evil, is this description where human beings fell from our high calling as God's image bearers, particularly in the area of sex and marriage, as well as every other, 
to crash against the moral reality of God's world, in which case we became broken. See, the Bible actually says that all of us have a sexual problem. That sexuality is not a problem for some, for some who are sexually addicted or for some who have different desires. There's no such thing in the Bible as being straight. Everyone is sexually broken. Everyone is bent out of shape. So that no one loves to the right degree, only to the right person, at the right way and time. But rather, our desires are no longer ordered by love of God. Our desires are all disordered. And the Bible's description of the fall is devastating. That although we live in a world that God has made, this world now is heavily influenced by the curse. Human beings have broken bodies. Our bodies don't operate the way that God ultimately intended to. We're subject to all kinds of maladies, whether from birth or ones that we pick up or the decay of time. We have broken minds. We don't think clearly or rationally. We're motivated by a whole host of differing desires. And we have disordered desires. At the heart, it doesn't function the way that God ultimately intended to, to love him and love others, to look outwardly. Instead, it's curved in upon itself. And all of the good things that have been implanted in us are now so conflicting and out of order that it's just a mess within And it can do a whole lot of damage. And the Bible describes it when we turn our back on God. In Romans 1, it says that rather than worshiping the creator, instead, we just looked down a little bit further to get caught up onto something that we shouldn't, to place the created thing into that ultimate place of God. And so we began to worship all kinds of other human pursuits, power, success, fame, money, and Sex. So that the good thing, sex, that God originally created has now become a God thing, an idol, as we try and satisfy the deepest hungers that we have for a relationship with God with some cheap substitute. Our longings for intimacy and meaning and satisfaction, which were only meant to be found in our creator, and now we're trying to find them in the bedroom, and that it's just not working. Everyone in thought, word, or indeed has a sexual history. That is not something that God is excited about because it's leading us into captivity, into harm. It's not helping us fulfill who we're intended to be. And because God is a loving heavenly father, because he wants to lead us into freedom to be able to become the people he always intended to be, to enjoy the fullness of life as it was created for, he wants to lead us out of this slavery to sexual idolatry. And this is the description in the biblical story where ultimately God becomes one of us. God himself becomes human. And the biblical story, we have this picture of Jesus coming to restore us for better. And what is fascinating about Jesus is the way that Jesus does not ignore sexuality. Sex and sexuality, sexual feelings, sexual past and history, sexual abuse. These are not things that are denied by God. They're not things that are ignored by God. They're not things that are beneath God. They're things that are addressed up front. And so many of the stories that are told in the Gospels are Jesus addressing these kinds of issues. We're told that Jesus comes to forgive our sexual sin, that Jesus comes to remove our shame. Think about the stories of where Jesus is in the house of Simon the Pharisee. And we're told that a sinner comes in. (laughs) 
a sinful woman, which is code for she was a hooker. Everyone knows her story. She's well known for her sexual past. Simon is a religious dude. He's well known in the community. He's respected. He's got Jesus, this traveling rabbi, coming to his house. And yet Jesus walks in, sits down, and she bursts through the doors, having heard of the teaching of Jesus, the forgiveness that he brings, the love of God that he came to represent, the freedom that he offers, the restoration of a life to God. And it says that she comes and breaks down at his feet. And with her tears and with her hair, she washes his feet. And there's a beautiful image of, <coughs> of Jesus helping these religious zealots and leaders who had lost understanding of the kindness and the grace and the love of God and wanting to lead people out of all kinds of slavery to being able to restore her to the love of God, restore her to a relationship with him, restore her to her intended purpose. And the gratitude that flows from her new experience of God's love and the change that he's bringing in her life. She's been released from shame and Jesus won't let anyone throw it back upon her. He makes her an emblem of grace. Or think about the woman caught in adultery. John chapter 8. There's a story where uh, there is, I'm guessing, a man and a woman caught in the act of adultery. Um, I couldn't imagine being caught in the act of adultery. It's quite a, it must be an incredibly disorienting thing. But the religious leaders, again, showing their hand, they bring the woman to Jesus, as is part of the evilness of their culture. The man doesn't seem to be questioned at all, but the woman is brought to Jesus and dragged before him. And they try to trap him. What should be done? Should we cast judgment on this lady, Jesus? Should we pick up stones and stone her? And Jesus doesn't pay them any attention. He just keeps on doing what he does. And they keep pushing him on the point until he says, he who is without sin, let him cast the first stone. And the text says that from the oldest to the youngest, one by one, they all leave. The oldest are far more aware of their failure in this area, in thought, in word, and in deed. Jesus seems to know everything about everyone. They're probably terrified that if they pick up a stone, he'll unmask them in front of everyone. I saw what you did. I saw what you thought. You're no better than this woman. You're all sexually broken. You're all sexually bent. And yet what is interesting is the only sinless one there, the only person with the right to cast a stone, Jesus, he doesn't. Instead, what does he do? Does no one condemn you? No one, sir. Then neither do I condemn you. But go and sin no more. Jesus recognizes that everyone's sexually broken, and yet he invites her to leave that behind, to not be defined by her past, it may describe an aspect of who she was, but that doesn't describe who she is in relationship to God and his future for her. Jesus invites her into grace to experience him removing her shame. You see, your sexual story, it doesn't have to define who you are. Nor does it disqualify you from the love and the grace of God that is freely offered to everyone who believes in Jesus. Because what Jesus offers us is something far deeper than an identity that's based purely on our sexual feelings or our sexual expression. It's an identity that's rooted 
in the Christian story. It's an identity that's rooted in our creator and ultimately in the cross that Jesus was willing to bear. Who defines your value? Who defines your identity? Are you going to let someone else's words or even the own fickle feelings that we have that change and morph with time define your value? Or will you let your creator's intended purpose for who you are define your value? That you are made in his image, an inalienable value, an inalienable source of identity, uniqueness, beauty. And ultimately our value is based upon what someone is willing to pay for us. And in the Christian story, God was willing to pay with blood. Your value is determined by the cross of Jesus Christ. You are so known by God as I am in all of my sexual sins. And God loves me even on my worst day. He loves me so much to the skies that he's willing to shed his own blood to purchase my forgiveness, my freedom, and my eternal life. And that's the good news of the Christian story. Our sexual heights and our sexual lows, they do not define who we are. Our creator and our cross have that right. And Jesus also in his life, he expresses how you can experience a full human life without ever being married or having sex. The existence of Jesus of Nazareth is this anomaly that shatters the sexual story of our secular friends. If you think you can only be truly human, if you fulfill all of your sexual desires, be true to your inner self and all of those longings, well, then Jesus seemed to live a pretty remarkable life. And he never married. And he never had sex. See, marriage has an incredibly high value in the Christian story, but so too does singleness. Because although marriage may show or best describe the shape of the gospel and the sense of God being married to a people... It seems to me that singleness shows the sufficiency of the gospel. That a relationship with God is richly satisfying. It's enough. You don't have to be married or have sex to live a fully human, satisfying, meaningful, joy-filled life. And so Jesus smashes the idol of sex and marriage in our Hollywood culture. And then Jesus turns to the church, this fourth scene in the biblical story, where he sends us together to heal the world from sexual brokenness, to be able to carry this forgiveness that came through him, through the cross and his resurrection, to live out our new identity, which isn't based upon our sexual feelings, but is rooted in our creator and his cross, and to show what it looks like to be a different kind of spiritual family. In Mark 10... A rich young ruler comes up to Jesus and he says, good teacher, what must I do to have eternal life? Jesus says, well, keep the commandments. He says, I've done that. He's confident, this guy. Foolish, but confident. And Jesus says, well, then one thing you lack. Sell everything that you have. Give it to the poor. If you would be perfect and then come and follow me. And says that rich man went away sad because he loved his money. See, God was a means to an end for him to be rich. Money had become the God thing and God had become something secondary. And here is God inviting him to have God, the ultimate end, and instead he chooses money. 
Now, Jesus goes on here to what is a very challenging message to us in the West. And he says, it's really hard for the rich to enter into the kingdom of heaven. And then Peter turns to him and says, Lord, but we've given up everything to follow you. In fact, the text says that Peter began to say, Lord, we've given up everything to follow you. It's though Jesus breaks in at this point. And here's what Jesus says. He says, no one who gives up anything to follow me, whether mother, brothers, husband, wife, children, will fail to receive in this life 100 times that which they give up. With side order of persecutions. It's part of the package deal. Jesus might have worked for Telstra or something like that. But then he says, and then in the life to come, reap eternal life. See, Jesus makes a number of assumptions in this passage. Jesus assumes that following him will cost you something. It will mean saying no to a whole host of things. In fact, elsewhere, he describes it as taking up a cross to follow him. That sometimes it's going to feel like following Jesus will kill you. It's killing you. It's denying something that seems really real to you in that moment. But Jesus says that it's in losing your life here that you truly find it. And he assumes that the kind of things that we're saying no to, the hardest things are actually in the relational sphere. Mothers, brothers, husbands, wife, children. That that's where we tend to tap real meaning in life. But Jesus also promises then that whatever you give up, in this life, in that kind of sphere, then coming to follow him, you should receive a hundredfold whatever you give up. And this is a profound challenge to the Christian church. Because Jesus is essentially saying that some people are going to have to give up a heck of a lot to follow him. This has been true with some of my Muslim friends that have become Christians. Had to give up their family, run fleeing for their lives from Turkey, from Iran giving up everything that they were to come and follow Jesus. Who's going to be their family now? Who's going to be their community now? Whose table are they going to eat dinner at? Where will they celebrate Christmas and Easter? And it's also profoundly true of many of my single friends. Some who have come out of backgrounds of being gay, but many who just live life, whether single, divorced, or widowed. How are we a family to them? You see, if the church fails at this point, if the church so elevates marriage and this idol of Hollywood, sex and marriage as being the ultimate thing, the biological family, and fails to incorporate meaningfully people whose life is different in that regard, celebrating both marriage and singleness as being gifts from God, as the Apostle Paul does, if we fail to open up our doors in significant ways to be a different kind of spiritual family, a richness of friendship, a richness of community, then we are making Jesus out to be a liar. And those of my friends who are in these positions, who are staring down 40 or 50 years of perhaps remaining single and being faithful to Jesus and his sexual ethic, of his call not to heterosexuality, but to holiness, of honoring his design of sex and marriage. <laughs> I want to be their family. I want them to be godparents to my kids. I want them to feel like our front door comes with a house key and that the church should be the safest, richest form of intimacy, relationship, friendship, and community 
for anyone in this space. That's the witness that Jesus tells us that we have to be. That's the healing that the church gets to go and offer as a spiritual family. And then perhaps the most interesting scene of the Bible in this whole area of sex and marriage, the one thing that really pops the bubble of us making too much of it, comes in the book of Revelation. Because in Revelation 19, 20, 21, and 22, the last few chapters of the Bible, it describes the return of Jesus and the marriage of God to his people. And here, the purpose of sex and marriage is done. Jesus, when he describes the resurrection, the Sadducees are trying to catch him out. There's this woman who's married to a guy. He dies, and then she marries his brother, and he dies, and then she marries his brother, and he dies. This goes all the way down the list of seven brothers. At one point, someone should question what being married to this wife is doing. But (laughs) nonetheless, Jesus at the resurrection, at the resurrection, whose wife will she be? And Jesus says, you are in error. For you neither know God nor the scriptures. Because at the resurrection, people neither be married nor given in marriage, but will become like the angels. Marriage has a very particular timely purpose. Till death do we part. And as much as we may be caught up in the romantic idea of we'll be reunited in eternity, that is true. But reunited in a deeper way, as with the rest of our human family, and ultimately with God. Our sexual passions are powerful, but they're ultimately compasses that point to something deeper. That sexual longing, sexual passions are a hunger that is ultimately meant to be met in our face-to-face union with God. There are a lot of things that will kill you in this life. Not eating, that'll that'll kill you. (laughs) Not sleeping will kill you, that's a need. Shelter a need, clothing, a need, medical attention, it's definitely a need. I've never heard of one single case of a person dying for lack of sex. It's a different kind of hunger. It's something that's God's pushed there to help us understand the depths to which he desires us. You are loved by God fiercely. God desires to know you and be known by you fiercely. You are destined, if you trust in Jesus, to have a depth of relationship with God that you cannot even imagine, to be known to the depths and loved to the skies, fully known and fully loved. That's what you're destined for. And at the height of sexual desire, you're only getting a small taste of the fierceness of God's passion for us. It's an incredible picture. In the world to come where Jesus returns to set everything right, to exile evil, remove the curse. This is the ultimate promise that we have. That marriage and sex in a human way, they're simply eclipsed at the new creation by something better. The time of the trailer is over. The movie release is here. So now we get to celebrate and settle in for the ride. See, I think there's something so incredibly healthy about the Christian story on sexuality. There's a high view of marriage, a high view of singleness, a beautiful view of sexual passions. But it says that as moral agents, we actually get to discipline our desires. We get to bring them into a greater order of a love for God and a love for our fellow neighbor. To actually live within the bounds of their intended purpose. To be able to fulfill that pattern of revealing God and his gospel. To be able to help the human project and serve the common good. And that whether you are married... 
and having sex, or whether you're not married and therefore not having sex, that both of those are fully human, fantastic ways of living with God and living with God's people and living incredibly useful lives. It says a lot of good things about our sexuality, but it doesn't make our sexuality ultimate in defining our identity. And where all of us experience sexual confusion, pain, and brokenness, it offers an incredible pattern and an ultimate hope that whatever we struggle with here, we can both find forgiveness, a removal of the shame, a community of help to be able to live in the freedom that God designs for us, but also an ultimate future that whatever has been defining us in the past, it doesn't define our future. And it certainly doesn't disqualify us from God's future. And I find those to be good words of hope and a far better story than anything our sexual, secular culture can offer us. I hope you found that helpful. God bless you. Well, thank you so much, Dan. I think that was probably the most clearly articulated and succinct presentation that I've heard on the subject of sexuality. Wouldn't you agree? It was just incredibly articulated. Let's thank Dan again. Absolutely fantastic. Thanks, Dan. Okay, I think we, uh, we might begin this little segment now, so we're not here too late. Uh, thank you so much for all, all your questions, quite a large number of questions, and I've tried to group some of them together, and obviously tonight we won't be able to do them all justice, but uh, just a great opportunity, I think, to at least share in some of these significant matters, and there may be an opportunity afterwards, and there should be, if anyone would like to talk more, and certainly approach one of the pastors, or the opportunity you might have afterwards to talk. But some of these matters, of course, are quite deep and uh, may need further discussion. But I thought it'd be good to start with a question that kind of, uh, it's up on the screen there, but it comes in many different forms. And it's really asking the question, is it okay to have sex before marriage? Um, In different situations, um, we might be going to get married and we love one another. And so is it okay? Or is it just okay generally to have sex before marriage? So I don't know whether you'd like to start with that one, Dan. Sure. Um, Well, thank you for all these questions, uh, and hopefully we'll be able to say something that might be useful or helpful in responding to them. Let me just say a word um, about Q&As in general. Uh, Q&As will always leave you disappointed because the kind of questions that you're asking really deserve meaningful responses and long responses and well-thought-through responses, not just off-the-cuff kind of things. And so uh, what we'll try and do tonight is just give maybe a brief window in something that might be useful. And often, if we don't know, we'll say we don't know. If it's better to have a conversation, say, hey, maybe come have a conversation, or we'll point you towards someone that we think might be able to help speak to it, the resource uh, more significantly. So um, on this question, is it okay to have sex um, before marriage? Uh, one of the things that I think is really just important to explore is come back to, well, what is the purpose for marriage and sex? And okay according to whom? So if our desire is to be able to want to live within God's story and to be able to please our Heavenly Father and to be able to live within the moral grain, the design that he gives for sex and marriage, then sex is meant to be the symbol of the covenant of marriage. It's meant to be an intimacy that's enjoyed within the protection and the commitment of that covenant. And so before actually making that commitment, 
commitment to promising before God and before everyone else that you've made that decision together, then this sex isn't serving the purpose of which it's ultimately intended to do in bonding and representing the intimacy of that marriage. And so uh, I would say from uh, sort of a sexual ethics perspective within the Christian story, the answer is no. This would be considered to be a deviation from God's design or a misuse of the great gift of sex. And irrespective of the feelings at the time between the two people, the desire is ultimately that it would represent the kind of covenant that's already been made. And I would say just practically, uh, particularly for couples that are approaching marriage, and you say, well, we already love each other and we're getting there. And I'm saying, well, you're going to face all kinds of temptation when you get married. Getting married does not now mean it's a sexual smorgasbord and you can do whatever you want whenever you want. There are all kinds of questions of timing and compatibility and levels of energy and all kinds of things that are going to go on. And you're going to be constantly tempted towards sexual desires outside of your marriage as well. And so learning to be able to discipline your sexual desires within that period heading up towards marriage is just good preparation for being able to discipline your desires within your marriage as well, because it's always going to be something where you're learning to say no to desires as they pop up to be able to help serve the good ends that God intends for them. And so I'd probably give that kind of response. Again, with all of these things, if we're saying something is not within God's intended pattern. That does not mean that if you have had sex before marriage, that disqualifies you from God's love or God's purposes or shapes your identity or should fill you with a shame that's irreversible. All of those things can be forgiven and to be brought into the light and to be um, uh, made new by God. But if we want to honor God and to fulfill the purpose of sex and marriage, that would be my response. Yeah, good. James, do you want to make any comment on that? Dan, thank you so much. I would just say... um, Again, if you're looking for a one-word answer, the answer is no. But because God has a bigger yes. Yes. He's got a bigger yes about that whole thing of arousal and the importance of that being placed in the right context that you wouldn't be led into greater temptation once you're married. Mm. Because you know what it means to be absolutely committed, heart, mind, body, and soul, in marriage to to your spouse. Mm. So it's no, but because God's got a bigger yes, don't forget that. Yeah. Another question, too, just related to that is around when is it sin? Um, when one lusts after a woman but doesn't act on that, or a homosexual desire to another man, and that lust is there but it's not acted upon, uh, when is sexual sin sin? Yeah, it's an interesting question, actually. And to be honest, I'm not sure of the usefulness of the question. Um, Sometimes the the way in which we ask questions is completely understandable, and it's natural to ask questions or phrase them in that way. But as to whether it's the right question ultimately to be asking, um, let me me just play this out for a second. Um, My general thoughts in approaching this would be um, we have disordered desires, and we live in a radically sexualized culture <laughs> that unless you are physically blind <laughs> or walk around with your eyes closed, you cannot help but be bombarded by sexually explicit images in one way or another, whether billboards or TV ads or uh, shopping malls or something like shopping centers. Sorry, we're in Australia. Um, and so this is a very real question, but at the same time, I think the better way to say is that what can I do to be able to guard myself and continually bring myself before God? And the whole pattern of, uh, you know, Job in the Old Testament making this covenant with his eyes that I will not look upon another woman. Um, or Jesus speaking about even to lust after a person. They're speaking here about force, uh, shaping our desires and shaping our longing in such a way that we want to live 
with sexual integrity and that we're just constantly coming to God realizing that there's a thousand ways we will be falling short and that there shouldn't be any desire to entertain or to move on with thinking or images or anything like that. Uh, And so maybe the more helpful answer is just what can I do to promote sexual integrity when it comes to my desiring kind of life? And I think there's this beautiful picture in uh, in what happens in um, the book of Song of Solomon, the Old Testament, where it's this delighting in another person, but as soon as that delight begins to move over into a point of arousal before the aspect of where they're, they're married, there's this continual refrain of do not arouse or awaken love before the appointed time. And where I think even perhaps in, let's say, a, a boyfriend and girlfriend being together, I'm often asked the question, well, where's the line? How far is too far? When do we start doing sexual sin? I tend to think, well, the line probably is actually different for everyone depending on how uh, your sexual feelings ultimately operate. That's different physically for every person. But I would tend to say as soon as you're moving from affection to arousal, that's usually going to be a good indicator that you're stepping off a cliff uh, into dangerous territory. Um, And so whatever boundaries you need to... uh, um, uh, uh, I was about to say the word erect. Uh, Whatever boundaries you need to... um, He's right, though. ...put up... Uh, to be able to guard yourself from, from moving into that from affection to arousal or from just an appreciation into a point where this is starting to trigger different thoughts. Whatever you can do to foster that, I just think is the right course of action to foster sexual integrity. Recognizing that every single day we come before God and say, forgive us our sins, just as we forgive those who have sinned against us. And that's just the continual pattern of our life in coming back and trying to move towards sexual integrity. Yeah, no, that's great, Dan. Dan, I wonder how, how do you help someone... Uh, this is probably a good question to start with, James. How do you help someone who comes to you and says, look, they're struggling with their sexual identity, um, uh, they feel like they're homosexual and they've got homosexual desires, how do you walk with them? How do you, what, how do you kind of deal with that kind of thing? Particularly, say, if a loved one, you had to go to, you know, a, go to a loved one and say, look, I think I'm actually uh, homosexual. Uh, how would you deal with any loved one? I mean, that's the bottom line in the midst of this. And let me say this, if somebody comes up to you and says, I'm struggling in the area of my sexuality, and particularly if it relates to something like homosexuality or same-sex attractions, we might say, the first thing I would do is I would just want to weep with them and put my arms around them and say, well done for being so courageous and brave. Mm. Because let me tell you, as I know from first-hand experience, having lived the gay lifestyle and having come out to my parents and school and other things, It is a hellish journey to get to that place, to actually say to somebody, I'm struggling in this area. Now, some people have written questions about their struggles. And I want to say to you, even if your question isn't answered tonight, I want to say to you, well done. Mm -hmm. Well done for being so courageous to put pen to paper or finger to keyboard and say, this is my struggle. But God's interested in that struggle very much. But how would you deal with a loved one in that area? Well, the fact they're a loved one is you love them. You love them. And the one thing you do is this is, it's really helpful them to understand that actually your life isn't perfect too. Because, you know, I know this certainly, and I meet this, see this with many people who struggle with sexuality, sexual identity, sexual addiction, or their past abuse, whatever, is, is um, they say, but I've shared with somebody and that I just feel there's this war. There's no sense of reciprocity with them as well. To try and reciprocate the sense in which, well, I'm not perfect either. And I think as Dan has very clearly said tonight, every person's sexuality is in some way broken. Now, there's some of you, you've got it a lot more together than others. 
And I'll tell you this from having run a number of programs with sex addiction. Some of my guys who are same-sex attracted or some of the women who are same-sex attracted, their lives are a lot more together than some of the others who are other-sex attracted Mm. or what we might call straight heterosexual. So this isn't about heterosexual or homosexual. This is about the fact, as Dan has clearly said, I hope, tonight, that we are broken and therefore we all need a loving ears to listen to us. Mm-hmm. We need loving arms when we're ready for them to hold us. Mm-hmm. We need a loving heart that's going to be committed to us and a heart that's willing to also be vulnerable and to say, come on, I'll journey with you. And if we can't find out, the, I've got no answers, we'll find out the answers together. Mm-hmm. But I'm here for you. And God's love hasn't changed for you. That's mm-hmm. the bottom line. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And um, James, there's a number of questions around the reason for these urges, these homosexual urges, same-sex attraction, uh, is that choice, is that genetics? Um, what's the reason for it? Is it brokenness? Look, I mean, there's, and again, Dan's laid the ground for me to, to answer this question in a little bit tonight in the limited time we have together. Um, the, the secular society would say one thing, um, but then, and then the church has got a number of answers these days, which is probably a reason why there's a number of from different congregations who are here tonight. Um, and all I can do is in some way talk out of what it's like to walk with Christians and non-Christians in this area. The first thing I can say is this, and I, I quite deliberately put on my black T-shirt tonight. Um, I wish this said changing rather than changed um, because nobody's totally arrived. I'm not totally arrived still a sinner, just like every one of you here. But as I follow Christ, I should be changing. And all I know is this, is having been a man who was 100% same-sex attracted, and over a number of years on a, a crazy journey, but come to a place of beginning to experience other sex attraction or finding women attractive, which I was told was impossible, shocked me to the core. Now, I know hundreds of other people like that. Many of their testimonies are on the changedmovement.com website. And I'm not being paid to advertise that, by the way. Um, But many of the other stories on this website and others like it, twoprisms.com, which is a website created here in Australia for Aussies' stories that are similar to this, they're not talking about gay to straight. They're talking about um, lost to found. Lost to found. But I'd say this to you, if it's genetic... There are still a lot of people out there who are same-sex attracted and their genetics are changing from being homosexual to not being homosexual. So there's a question mark there for a start. The gay gene has never been found and yet it's very clear if they came here in 200 years' time they would find dead cells from Dan Patterson, James Parker and Simon Ford on this stage because we have the technology to do that but we haven't got the technology yet to find the gay gene. What is some of the roots of this Again, my experience and experience of many, many others, many professionals, is that if we understand our environment and are willing to look at it, we can often find telltale signs as to why we're attracted towards the people we're attracted to. So I know a number of perfectly heterosexual guys, and they go, wow, look at him, he's just like such a guy. And they're drawn towards this man, but they've got no sexual feeling towards him. But when I know their story and they know their own story, they begin to understand why they're drawn to what they're drawn to. And I've not seen a question on this, but I'll bring in the topic of pornography very quickly. Everything we're drawn to in pornography is because we have a desire somehow to connect with God. 
Our godly desire is looking to connect, but we're doing it on an earthly or a temporal way rather than going to the eternal one. We don't go off to think, we don't desire something that we don't desire. We desire something we do desire. So when a man finds another man attractive, there's something about him that's going, oh, maybe I wish I had that, or I wish I could connect deeply with him. The problem we have today in particular, and particularly for young people, is I have many young men saying, I, I think I must be gay or bisexual. I said, why is that? Well, I really like this other guy. I said, you're right to like him. He's a damn handsome man. <laughs> oh, it's more than that. And, and he's like this. And what do you like about it? Well, he's like this. I said, he's got great academic ability. He's got great sporting prowess. You should find that attractive. But we've mistaken today that to find somebody else attractive in our grossly sexualized culture means therefore I must be bisexual or gay. No, he just wants to really, really get to be a good friend of this guy and to share his talents and his goodness, etc. We've lost the art of good, healthy, same-sex peer friendship. That's often why we've got many of the issues we've got today, and that's often the core underlying reason between many people's issues with sexuality. And that's why, Dan, uh, James, there's a question around, in real life, I'm not same-sex attracted, but online, I am. What's going on there? Of course, I mean, most guys today, if if I'm one-on-one with you, one of the questions I ask you is, how's your porn addiction going? And um, I don't ask if you've got it, I just assume you have, because actually it's so pandemic, you're rare if you haven't got one. Um, That sounds a little bit coarse, but I think we've got to start getting real about this topic. I mean, really real about it. Um, What happens is, for many of our young people today, and I was at a cyber um, talk recently by uh, a guy who's um, worked a lot in this area and works a lot, and he talks a lot in primary schools to kids, and so he's got all the facts and figures of what our 8, 9, 10, 11-year-olds are looking at. And by the age of 11, they say most kids have seen some form of hardcore pornography in some way or other. It's not difficult. An 11-year-old, and particularly a 10, 9, 8, 7-year-old, cannot process what they see on screen. And if they compare their own self to what they're seeing on screen, they're not like it. And they can't believe they could be like it. So what happens is this, a guy may be with a girl, he might think, oh, she's really attractive and she finds me attractive, that's great. But when he's on his own, his mind, his synaptic trenches, his um, neuro-shaping, if you like, his neuroplasticity, has been plasticinized. I just just made that word up. Um, (laughs) But you know what I mean? It's been, yeah, it's it's been shaped in such a way that years previously he never quite saw himself as being man enough because he's not like what he's seen on porn. And it still lingers there within him. So I'm with a woman. She likes me and I like her and I feel good enough. But when I go back to the porn, I still don't believe I'm like the guys I'm looking at online. And that's where the cross comes in. And the need for our congregations, our church communities above all, to be able to lift the lid on this stuff and to be able to bring people to a place where they can bring this, their darkness into a place of light Mm. of Christ so the Lord can show what's going on. And he can remove the shame of their doubt about their own true identity in him. Because let me tell you, God has not made a mistake in the way that he shaped any of us. Our bodies are fine because he made them. Just costs a lot of money to try and change it, doesn't it? Don't go there. (laughs) Yeah, that's right. James, there's also a number of questions around, you know, Christianity and being a Christian and being involved in the church if you are, in fact, same-sex attracted. Um, so can we be a Christian and 
be same-sex attracted or be a homosexual LGBT person? There's actually almost three questions that you put to me there, Simon. Um, and the questions are, can you be an, uh, a, a gay Christian, lesbian Christian, a queer Christian, a bisexual Christian? Can you be a, a Christian and be homosexual? Or can you be a Christian and experience same-sex attraction? And all three of those categories are quite different. You see, ultimately, again, Dan, you did a great job of laying the ground here, of leaving behind father and mother, son, daughter, everything and following Christ. Is Christ the very core and center of your life? Because only then when every pocket of your life belongs to him, can his light shine into every part of you and you become light and therefore you are in Christ, you are on the way and you are therefore living out what it is called to be a follower of Christ, to be a Christian. Mm. So if you're a gay Christian and that gay bit is really important to you and I'm not denying your the fact you might be fully, totally same-sex attracted. Nobody's denying that. Nobody wants you to deny that, incidentally. But if the gay bit is more important to you than the Christian bit, you are not fully following Christ. You're not. Um, that's true of other people who put another word before Christian. Either you are in Christ, you cannot serve two masters, or, in, or not. That's for the gay Christian. So when somebody says to me, well, I'm a gay Christian, I go, oh, okay, well, break that open for me a little bit more because most people use that phrase not quite understanding what it means or how it relates to their lives. When it comes to somebody who says, I'm a, I'm a Christian and I'm homosexual, even that word homosexual may mean I'm not practicing. Well, you know, are you a sinner because you have same-sex attraction? No, what you do with any attraction can become sinful. Let's get that very clear. And some of the holiest men and women I know are fully and utterly same-sex attracted, but their pursuit of holiness is so sharp. They are the holiest men and women I know. They just are. Then there comes the part of what many, particularly young people today, but many in our congregation struggle with, is they, they have some form of same-sex attraction. They're drawn to their own kind. Um, well, as long as being centered in Christ is the essence of what your identity is. Mm. Everything else is secondary. As long as you're making sure he's the center, he will shine his light into your darkness at the appropriate time, in the appropriate way, when he chooses to do that. Everything else is up to him, really. Mm. And that's where our focus should be. Mm. Christ first in all things. Thanks, yeah. mm. So what would you say to someone then, James, who uh, said, look, I'm, I'm a Christian and I'm following the Lord but I want to continue with my gay lifestyle. I would say, again, it, it, this all comes back to the heart and the shape of the heart. Um, permit me just for one minute to share a little bit of my own story. So I came to Christ in the midst of a committed gay relationship. Um, I was discipled almost immediately. Therefore, I learned what it was to learn to shut this mouth up, and yes, it can talk, and to be quiet and to be still before the Lord. And I began to enter into intimacy with the Lord. I was still a, like, I'd become, I regarded myself as a gay Christian. My boyfriend saw the difference in me. He came and committed his life to the Lord. So we were this archetypal gay Christian couple. We were reading our Bibles every day. We were praying every day, etc. We were still using the terminology gay Christian. But our pursuit was of Christ. It came to the point where I felt such a profound discomfort in our relationship because I came to realize he wasn't idle to me and I was called to be his brother, not his lover in any way, apart from a non-sexual love between brothers. 
And I came to a point of finishing that relationship. Only then did I realize that actually I must first and foremost be a Christian who, yes, was still totally same-sex attracted. Mm -hmm. So we have to be very gentle with people's lives and where they're at. Because you know something, and I'll be honest with you, I've seen gay couples in churches, and, and I think they're more serious about following the Lord than some of the other people in the congregation are who've been here for 10 years. It's just that they're on an, an incredible journey that might take them a little bit longer or they've got an even deeper or a, sorry, a sharper incline to have to, to, to climb because of what they've taken on the world's understanding. Therefore, it's important that we, we welcome anybody and everybody into our communities. I believe we do. I've never walked into a church and said, gay, straight, bisexual, never. <laughs> you know, they're just that. So, look, I, hopefully I think I've... Yeah, that's great, James. I really appreciate that. I think it's important for a lot of people to hear that. Mm. We're all broken, and our hearts are after to follow the Lord, and the Lord does his work in us uniquely right. as we walk on with him. Maybe just turning the subject now to singleness, um, there's a number of questions around singleness, and Dan, you handled that quite well, I thought, during the presentation. But <coughs> I think it's important perhaps just to comment on why do you think that in the church marriage is so idolised over and above singleness? Yeah, um, it's a great question. It's probably one that's rooted in all kinds of histories, and I'm probably not qualified enough. Um, a lot of it traces back to the Protestant Reformation, that the marriage had been seen to be actually a secular endeavor for a long time within the Roman Catholic Church throughout sort of the, the thousand-year period between 500 CE or, or AD and, uh, and 1500. But um, sort of the, the Protestant Reformation kicked off this rediscovery of the idea of people involved and the collapsing of this worldly and divine things into each other, that we are embodied creatures, that God's design for us is embodied, that work is imbued with significance, that marriage and family are imbued with significance. And so guys like Martin Luther, uh, you know, marrying a runaway nun uh, as a reforming ex-Catholic priest and, and so it just started this new view where marriage actually was held up to be almost sac- sacramental now within the Protestant movement as being something that was incredibly prized. I think moving then through the Victorian era where it was understood that the biological family is seen to be sort of the stable building blocks of any meaningful society and so if you have healthy marriages and healthy kids that tends to produce healthy society and working units and these sorts of things but then we're as susceptible to Hollywood as everyone else you know and so the same messages that we love to go and watch in Disney films and in every other movie we buy into and so we have photographers capturing all of these moments and the way that we speak about marriage we celebrate Mother's Day and Father's Day but we don't celebrate Singles Day there's a whole lot of things that we do that just implicitly buy into the same narrative that ultimate thing in life is when you hit here and so if someone's 31 and they're a woman and they're in church and they're not married must be something wrong or you've missed the boat or time's ticking or these sorts of statements are made which are just profoundly unhelpful or if we're looking for a pastor or a Christian leader well we're looking for a married person right we want them to come with a nice little neat family because a single person couldn't possibly understand the complexities of human life and relationships to be able to pastor a group of people which is exact opposite of what the apostle Paul taught by the way but still um, and so you're looking at all of these realities and, uh, and I just think that there are ways that whether we've looked at certain biblical things and fed everything through that lens rather than the whole counsel of God or whether there are ways that you know secular Hollywood view of relationships has kind of come through as well it's just uh, we're as much a product of our culture as secular people are as well we just tend to baptize it with Christian language yeah, yeah. The, the, the one point I just want to say in this is um, 
And I only had this realization in the last couple of years, and particularly during the, the, the same-sex marriage debate, is the fact that there, were, there is a wedding invitation in every single one of our souls. That's why marriage is something we'll go, or aspire to in some way, shape, or form. Because ultimately, we are the bride of Christ Mm. being called to live out our banquet and our wedding night for eternity with the Mm. Lord. That's great. So therefore, so I often say to single people, what do you mean, you you know, you may never get married? I said, get over it. Start preparing for your eternal marriage. That's actually what the married life on earth is about anyway. Because the married couple are supposed to be calling each other towards holiness to prepare for their eternal banquet with the Lord. So I tell you to the singles out there, you know, it's okay. You've got, your, you got your, your betrothal that's waiting for you. It's just whether or not you're going to willing to respond to it. Keep your eyes on him. It's mm. all that matters deep down. That's great. That's the bottom line. And that the body of Christ loves the single people and includes yeah. them. Mm. I mean, that's the yeah. big deal, isn't it? They yeah. so often feel excluded. Mm. Uh, meals out, friendships and so on. Is there more that we could be doing? Is there any practical things that you think we could be doing to help in that space? Yeah. Yeah, I, I mean, there's a, there's a million. Um, I, I think we should have a singles day. I think it would be a great start where we talk about the significance and meaning and value of singles in our lives. Um, and so whether, uh, I, I thought it was a, sh- a shocking thought, but the idea that now, given the cultural frame of things, the majority of people will spend the majority of their life single. So even if you're married for 50 years, you probably live to be over 100 you'll spend the majority of your life single and the majority of people will spend the majority of their life single because of either singleness, divorce, widowing, whatever it be. And so that's, I think, quite a profound reality that we need to start celebrating and exploring. Well, what is the gift of singleness? Not that you were born with some innate desire not to be married to someone or to be close to someone else. That's just sociopathic behavior, right? That's introvertism gone wrong. Uh, but this, this reality that it's just the state of being that we're in. You are unmarried. You are single. That is the gift of this status of life. And what is it that opens up in terms of friendships and opportunities to serve the Lord with an undivided heart? And so I think that would be a great start. And one of my um, uh, friends, Sam Aubrey, uh, just said to me, Dan, who is around your dinner table regularly who is not like you? So not who do you once a year, you know, at, uh, as like a pity meal, you know, oh, your life is pretty terrible. Come have a meal with our family. And, but who is part of your family by virtue of that? So how is it that, that for them, an invitation into your family comes with a house key and a standing invitation to be at the dinner table and you make space for them regularly. And so for my wife and I, that's been a couple of people who were in a very different stage of life and a very different way of life, that they're just our good friends. And we've made commitments to try and do that. Um, for both of our boys, we have got godparents uh, who are single uh, and probably will be for the rest of their life for varied reasons. And so we've wanted to say we want them to be a significant voice and part of our family by including them in that way to be praying for our boys and relating to them well. And, uh, and so, yeah, they're just a few practical ways that I think are there, but I would be wanting to actually be teaching into this on a regular basis. There's nearly a relationship series in most churches every year and singleness tends to be, or singles ministries tend to be, how do we get ready for our marriage to our human spouse? When I just think actually exploring what does it mean to be human, the value, what can we do in this particular like status of being, how is it that we prepare for our eternal marriage? Uh, I just think this is something we need to talk more about in a positive frame to help balance out where that imbalance has been. What do you think about a singles day? Yep. Go for it. Yes. It was a great idea. What about a singles year? (laughs) Make it every year. (laughs) 
I'm single. <laughs> I know it's thought by many of the young adults in the church that there's this kind of lusting for marriage and they see that you know young people lusting to get married early um, and there's a question here around how do we deal with that in the church? How do we kind of put the brakes on it, if you like, and say, look, you know, uh, don't just have that single desire, mm. uh, but uh, think a bit differently and da 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 da. How do we do that more practically in the church? Yeah. Um, I think uh, when the Apostle Paul's talking about eldership, there's this great line where he says, anyone who desires to be an overseer, he desires a noble task, but an overseer must be and goes on with a bunch of descriptive realities of where that person should be in life. Um, and I think marriage, uh, we should think about it in the same way. Um, if young people are counselling young people, it's a disaster. Uh, it's the blind leading the blind. Um, and I speak as someone who has you know, done that sort of thing for a long time. Uh, but I just think the church is such a gift because you have a community of people of various generations. And the gift of the wisdom of the old is just to learn to ask really good questions. And it can only often happen in the context of meaningful relationship. You've got to have that, that rapport there. But to ask really good questions. And so I've, I mean, as you can imagine, doing youth and young adults ministry, always get asked, how do I know when I'm ready? How do I know when I'm ready? And I say, look, I think there's probably a coalescence of, of, of three things. When you feel like you can sacrificially live for your spouse and not for yourself, when your desire for marriage is not so that you can fulfill a particular sexual hunger that you have, but that you can help that person become who God intends them to be and sacrificially do that. That's, that's a good indicator. Um, where you're in a position in life where you're not living in mum and dad's house and eating from their fridge. When, when, when you're able to separate from the mother and the father and cleave to your spouse, um, just your practical state in life where that enables for that to kind of happen. And when all the wisest people you know look on and say yes to this relationship as well as to your readiness, that's when I think uh, is the kind of coalescence of, of being able to do that. And so for, for how do you put the brakes on, I would just start asking these sorts of questions of younger people um, and of the nature of the relationships that they have. How well do you, do you, are you able to see it and to know it and to do that kind of a thing? One of the things that we practiced with um, young couples in our church was uh, developing actually sort of relationship covenants. So... Um, they, we would get the couple that started dating to go away and to write a list of not just what will we not do, the, you know, what do we promise not to do, but actually to write out positively what do we promise to do to help get ourselves to a place where we can feel like we could do this. Uh, and so the, the frame of learning to be able to build virtue, life preparedness, to think through various aspects that they're going to need to work on in their own character or stuff so they're able to make those sorts of meaningful commitments. Uh, and that way people are aware. They give it to us as the young adults pass as one of their friends as well as their parents. And so there's like a full uh, sense of people being aware of what are the things that you're committing and we can just ask, how's that going? And we want to really celebrate and help you guys along this journey. It just meant that there was a greater sense of openness and of us being involved in the relationships and it all happens there and they come and said, will you marry us? And I'm like, I don't even know where you guys are at. So we're going to have a whole bunch of conversations before I answer that question. Um, and so I just, yeah, I think, I think getting the, the broader community involved is, is a big thing on that. Uh, and for some, they were 20 and 19 and they were ready. And they weren't rich, but they could make it. And they were ready. For others, they were 30 and they were ready, you know. Uh, and so just exploring what does it look like when you're in that kind of a place. I don't think there's a blanket age or level there, but the people are feeding and saying, yeah, we think yeah. God's in this. I think community involvement's the big one, yeah. isn't it? 
not just on your own. Yeah. Well, thank you so much, Dan and James. So appreciated your involvement in the panel. Isn't it just wonderful? These guys are a great blessing to us and uh, the way they've answered those questions. Let's give them a thank. You're welcome. Yeah. You'd be great. Thank you.